Hey, good morning, Crossroads. That was really lame. Like, hello. What a joy to worship uh, with you under the leadership of my son, Matt. Like, this is a father-son duo today, so. So when I was a kid growing up, we used to have like Sunday school, and so you would go as a little kid into your room and have Sunday school, and one of the songs we would sing was this, God is good to me, God is good to me, he holds my hand, he helps me stand, God is good to me. And that's pretty good when you're a kid in Sunday school, to life smacks you in the face, then suddenly that's a hard song to sing. Because let's face it, in the course of life, there are a lot of times where this whole thing about God is good to you has this huge question mark reigning over your head and ruling in your heart. The goodness of God is a very important quality. And if you doubt the goodness of God, it's a problem. It's a problem, obviously, spiritually. It's a problem to your relationship. If God is not good, then you can't trust him. If God is not good, then you probably don't even like him. If God is not good, he's not your, really your friend. He may at times feel more like your enemy. So the whole issue of the goodness of God is not a throwaway issue. Uh, it's a very important thing for us to consider, especially when life doesn't feel like God is good. And one of the arenas where life feels like God is not good is when the wicked prosper, when that competitor down the street selling the same kind of stuff you are is like making tons of money, stealing all of your customers and you know good and well that he cheats on his contracts, that he lies to his customers, and you're trying to run your business in integrity, and you're out there hoping somebody comes in your shop and his shop is full. And you're going like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. You know, if God is good, why do good pe bad people prosper? If God is good, why does that person who abused you seem so happy, seem so successful, seem so uncaring? Why, how is it that their life got blessed? Especially maybe when your life hasn't been all that blessed. If God is good, why does that person who has slandered you and hurt your, wrecked your reputation continue to have masses of people around them that listen to them about you? Why doesn't God do something about that? How could it be that God is good, and good things happen to bad people. So that'll be one time in life when you'll be tempted to doubt the goodness of God. Doubting the goodness of God is a wedge in your relationship with him that Satan can't wait to take advantage of. Just think back, Genesis chapter 1, all the way back to when it all began, when God and Adam and Eve walked in the garden in absolute, perfect, joyous, fulfilling, unhindered fellowship, and then slithering onto the scene in Genesis 3 comes Satan, and his first attack, the first wedge that he drives between them 
is to get them to doubt that God is good. Satan comes and says, did God say that you could not eat of every tree in the garden? Now all of a sudden, God's not good, he's stingy. <laughs> like, he's not good, he's trying to keep me from having everything that I want. Actually, that was pretty deceitful by Satan. God had said, you can eat of every tree in the garden except one. So now God is good, right? Like, wow, we can eat of all these trees except one? And then Satan comes along and twists it and said, did God say you can't eat of every tree in the garden? And then he goes on to explain to them that the only reason that God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because you'll be like him, you'll know the difference between good and evil, and if you just kind of break off with this God who's trying to hold you back, who's not really a good God, then you can have everything you want in your life. And they believed it, and they fell, and all of us have been the recipients of the damage of that moment when they ceased to believe that God was good. So, maybe we ought to talk about this. What do you think? Yeah, yeah maybe we ought to talk about this. I think we should talk about this. And uh, if you struggle with this in the scenario of your life, uh, you're not alone. Uh, good people have struggled with this. And one person who struggled with it came to a very interesting resolution of the challenge. And it's the psalmist, and it's found in psalmist, Psalm 73. Will you open your Bibles with me to Psalm 73? Now, normally at Crossroads, we stand and read the text. Earlier in the year, I was here, and I started reading the text, and you were all seated, and a lady yelled out, We stand to read the Bible at Crossroads! So being sufficiently spanked in that moment, <laughs> I decided this morning that we're going to read it as we go through it, and you're not going to be like jumping chaps up and down and up and down. So we're not going to actually read the whole text, but we are going to ultimately move through the whole text. Good enough? All right, so Psalm 73. Now, normally in the Psalms, often... The psalm starts out with a theme statement, and that's what happens in this psalm. And then after the theme statement, often the conflictual realities that engage that particular theme, and most psalms, wonderfully enough, then come to an ultimate resolution of that tension in the psalm, and that's exactly the way Psalm 73 is. And it begins by saying, truly God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart. So there's the thematic statement. There's the doctrinal theological affirmation. God is good. Verse 2, he says, but. <laughs> However. So has there ever been a time when your theology has been in conflict with your experience? That's exactly what's happening in this text. God is good. However, as for me, he says in verse 2, my feet had almost slipped. Now, that's a Hebrew metaphor for instability. We talked earlier about doubting the goodness of God will make you spiritually unstable. If you doubt him, you can't trust him. If you doubt him, you don't like him. If you doubt him, 
He's probably not your friend. Just doubting the goodness of God is dangerous spiritual territory. So he's saying, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I was unstable spiritually. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw, the text says, the prosperity of the wicked. Like, why on earth is God good to bad people? Why do they prosper? Now, when something annoys you, do you ever have anything that annoys you? Any people here who've had things annoy them? You know, you, you rehearse all the details, don't you? Like, this really is annoying, and you go through it, and you're happy to tell all the details to anybody who will listen. Just recite the details of how annoying this thing is. And that's what the psalmist does. He goes through, point by point, how wicked people prosper. And this is really a problem to him. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. It's interesting, in Eastern cultures, even today, largeness is a sign of prosperity. Because you have all the money you need to buy all the foods you need, and you can eat all you want to eat. And so that's his reference here, in case you were confused about that. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is like their necklace. They're violent, and violence covers them as a garment. I like this phrase. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Have you ever eaten so much you feel they have pressure behind your eyes? Like... <laughs> their hearts overflow with foolishness. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten to oppress people. They set their mouths against the heavens. They actually take speak poorly against God. And this is interesting. Their tongue struts through the earth. It's an interesting metaphor that their words, what they say, gets traction throughout all the earth. Is it, does it bother you that even in our day today, people who are famous and rich and rock stars and often live pretty wicked lives, Whenever they tweet, everybody listens. And it's like, they, they're, they're right, that's the truth. Do I have a witness on this? Do you get this? Like, seriously, like, everybody who is anybody, no matter how wicked or unrighteous they might be, if, they have, if they're a headliner, if they're a rock star, they can say whatever they want and everybody listens and everybody agrees and everybody follows them and tries to become like them. It's kind of like exactly what the psalmist is saying here. And what was even more troubling to the psalmist is some of God's people follow them. They listen to the tweets. They believe the tweets. They want to live like them because he says, therefore, his, his people, God's people, turn back to them. And God's people find no fault in these wicked people. And these wicked people who prosper, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? In other words, God doesn't know. He doesn't know anything. And then he concludes this list of annoyances about wicked people prospering by saying, behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. And what really gets me, they increase in riches. How, why is God good to bad people? And then he throws himself a pity party. Have you ever, ever thrown yourself a pity party? Well, so take my advice. Don't ever invite anybody to it. No, seriously. They'll, 
They'll try, they'll try to cheer you up and wreck all, wreck all the fun of having your pity party, right? So that's exactly where he goes. He goes into this pity party. Notice the text says, all in vain I have kept my heart clean. I've washed my hands in innocence. He's basically saying, I've been good for nothing. For all day long, I've been stricken. And what compounds it here is that God has blessed bad people, but his life has not been blessed. That's when it gets into deep tension. If God is good, why isn't he blessing me? Because I'm good. And why would he bless them when they're so bad? All day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. And he said, if I speak this, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I can't tell anybody in my small group about how I feel about this. <laughs> because then I'd look like a theological idiot. And I would have betrayed the church. So I got to keep this problem quiet, he's saying. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed like a wearisome task. You ever just get worn out? running all this stuff through your head. It's like your tanks are running on weary, like, I'm tired of thinking about this all the time. Until, until, so here the psalm flips, until I went into the sanctuary of God, until I went into God's presence, and what he's going to tell us, he got a whole different perspective so, so here's a formula that's really important to you, and to me, obviously. When life smacks us in the face, and especially in the context of this chapter, when somebody hurts you or offends or whatever, and they prosper, and you're wondering if God is good, what you'll do is you'll see, here's yourself, right? All right, stay with me. Are you with me? Come in. Okay. So here you are, Right? And here's the situation, right? Yeah. And here's God. All right, so the tendency is to you to look at the situation and judge God by the situation. And that usually doesn't turn out real well for God. Right? Do you, anybody ever live in that dynamic? Do I have a witness here? All right. Wrong. Stop that. But he went into the sanctuary of God. So he had his situation here. And he went to God. And then viewed the situation from God's perspective. So that's the right way to handle these things. Right? Right? Says, can't carry this ball by myself up here all day. Like, <laughs> but I just want to kind of make sure you've got that. That's what's happening in this text is that the whole first part of the text, he's judging God by the situation. He goes before God and judges the situation from God's point of view. And everything changes. And he says, wow. When I went into the sanctuary, verse 17, then I discerned their end. By the way, you have to remember that life is like a feature-length film. And if you freeze frame it in the moment, and if that's all you have, despair will probably be the byproduct. Don't ever freeze frame things in the moment. Remember that life 
is a feature-length film that God is the executive producer, and this thing's going somewhere, and this will have an ending, that there will be, there will be a last chapter. And he's saying here, you know, when I think about this, when I discerned their end, there was a last chapter for them, and it wasn't very pretty. Speaking here about the judgment of God, ultimate judgment of God on the wicked. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You'll make them fall to ruin. How they will be destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you will despise them as phantoms. Speaking here that the moment comes for the wicked when God will bring his judgment to bear upon them. It's a feature-length film. In baseball terms, it's what difference does it make if you have a really big inning and lose the whole game? When I was pastoring on the east side of the state and our kids were smaller, both Marty's parents and my parents lived in Florida. It's wonderful. Not that they were far away, that wasn't wonderful, but I was going to correct that there. <laughs> but that was free vacation time for us, right? So after the Sunday evening service, we'd pack the car, drive 24 hours straight to Florida. Do you know why we drove all night? Because the kids slept half the trip. That's why. Hello. For half the trip, Dad, she touched me. And so we'd get down there and head for the beach, right? And I'd take a book and so busy in God's work, I didn't have time to read a novel that I wanted to read. And I'd grab the book and we got the blanket out and I'd start reading the book and I'd get, Dad, 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 let's build a sandcastle. I don't want to build a sandcastle. I don't <laughs> But I think probably just driven by parental guilt for neglecting my kids like, all right, I guess was, you need to know something about me. I'm a project person. All right, so, so we'd go down to the edge of the shore, and we'd start building a sandcastle, and pretty soon the kids were watching me build the sandcastle, right? Because <laughs> I'll take care of this. And it would go, glory, we just built these magnificent sandcastles. They were fabulous. Like, you know, we had, like, seaweed on the wall for ivy and trees and moats and everything. And finally, when the architectural prize was done, I always wanted to be real near to the sandcastle because people walk by the beach, and they just kind of stop, and they go like, wow, that's really cool. Who built, who built that? Like, me, I built that. Like, <laughs> it's like... And then the sun would start to set, and, and we'd pack up the blanket and the book that I never got to read and look over my shoulder, there's my glory. Wow. Next morning, pack the car up, come back to the same place on the beach. Guess what? It's gone. The tide has come in. It's wiped out. And in a sense, the psalmist has realized that when the tide of God's judgment comes, all the glories of the wicked I just need to say that's where this, this metaphor breaks down. I wasn't the wicked one on the shore, right? So anyway, like, <laughs> but you're getting the point. Is anybody getting the point here? Like, when a tide of God's judgment comes, you can be sure of this, that they will get their due, for God is a just God, and he does judge sin, 
And he does judge wickedness and unrighteousness. And in that day, you will be affirmed and your righteousness will be affirmed in his presence. And so the psalmist just takes a deep breath. Like, I, I saw this so wrongly. I love, love what he admits, he says in verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart. Wow. In retrospect, I was brutish and ig ignorant. God, I was like an animal toward you. I'm like... God, I was like an idiot to think the way I thought. Like, I was like brainless to think the way I thought. And then he begins to revel in true prosperity. Now, I think you and I need to realize that life is driven by definitions. How you define life will be, see how, you, will be how you see life. Um, there's a story about a Texas rancher who was doing some consulting in Germany uh, for a farmer. And uh, so in the conversation in Germany, the farmer, or the Texas rancher said to the farmer, hey, how big is your place? He said, it's not very big. It's just like a mile this way, half a mile that way. That's not, we don't have a very big farm. And then the German guy says to the rancher, how big is your place in Texas? And the rancher goes, wow, I don't know how to tell you this. Maybe um, if I get in my pickup truck in the morning when the sun comes up and drive all day, when the sun goes down, I'm still on my ranch. The German farmer said, oh, I had a pickup truck like that once myself. <laughs> all of that to say definitions are everything. How you define life. So how do you define prosperity? I want to ask you that question. How do you define prosperity? The psalmist now comes to a whole different sense of God's goodness to him. And in a sense, we're going to see, he says, I am really the prosperous one because I have God and the, the ongoing benefit of his goodness to me, even though... Maybe my life is not materially blessed, even though my friends have forsaken me, even though whatever, 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 I have blessings from a good God. And look at what he says. He, he identifies four prosperities of the goodness of God. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. God's presence. Is there anybody in the house this morning that is really thankful that God will never leave you or forsake you. Seriously. How blessed can you be that the almighty creator of the universe cares about you and he is present with you. That yes, though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you. You have nothing to fear. And by the way, I don't know how big your world is, but he's bigger than your world. That's right. And he walks with you and he talks with you. He tells you you are his own. He never betrays. He's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. His presence and the psalmist is going, how prosperous am I? And not just his presence, but he says, in your presence, you hold my right hand. That's a Hebrew metaphor for protection. Yeah, little kids are amazing. 
You know, like, they can just be walking down the sidewalk and fall. Right? Your kids weren't like that? They just fall out of the high chair for no reason at all. Like, there's on the floor. Like, what? Wait, wait, what? What's going on here? <laughs> but if you're holding your kid by his right hand, he can slip, but he won't be damaged, right? He can slip, but... He won't really fall. This is about God's protection. That this God who is always present with me is my protection. God's protecting work is such a rich prosperity for us. I like to think about, I don't like to think about Job, but I like to think about the dynamics in the beginning of the book of Job where Satan comes to God in the presence of God. And God says, where have you been? And Satan says, wandering to and fro throughout the earth. Sometimes I travel a lot and I come home and Marty says, well, where have you been? Traveling to and fro throughout the earth. <laughs> so anyway, that, so God says, oh, if you've been traveling to and fro throughout the earth, have you seen my man Job? I'm telling you, I'm living for the moment when God would say that about me in Satan's face. Have you seen my man, Job? Oh. And Satan said, yes. And God said, he is righteous beyond everything. And then Satan, Satan slanders the worthiness of God before all the angelic hosts. He said, the reason he is righteous, the reason he is good, is because you have been good to him. You have prospered him materially. If you take all of that away, He will curse you. And in essence, Satan is saying, you are not worthy to be worshipped and praised regardless. This is the point of Job's test. I want to say to Job, you're not suffering for any earthly thing. Stop thinking you're suffering for a huger issue in the heavenly hosts. You can prove the point, Job. Stick with it. You can prove the point that God is worthy to be praised regardless of what happens in your life. Prove the point. Of course, his wife wasn't a huge help. Curse God and die. I mean, that's exactly what Satan was hoping would happen. So here goes the test. Roll out the test. Is God worthy to be worshipped and praised regardless? And in the process of that test, God restricts Satan's ability to totally destroy Job. This is interesting that God will not permit anything to come into your life that would ultimately, finally destroy you. He stands as the sovereign sentinel of the gate of your life, and he gives you ultimate, final protection. And anything he permits in, we have seen throughout Scripture and promised in Romans, that no matter how bad it is, he has the ability to make it turn out for good in the end. Like, what? If you doubt that, think of the cross. What more wicked moment could there have been than the crucifixion of this innocent creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross? Don't freeze frame the moment. Let the film roll. Because ultimately, God will make it for good. You and I sit here redeemed because God doesn't let Satan have full reign in our lives, restrains it, and turns it out for good at the end, whatever he does permit to come in. 
1 Corinthians says, there is nothing that has come into your life that God hasn't permitted and that he will make it ultimately turn out for good. So next time you're falling asleep, you say, God hasn't done anything for me today. Did you ever have somebody give this massive, mar- marvelous testimony? It's like, whoa. And you're going, God never does anything for me. Anybody ever think that? <laughs> think it no more. What did he keep out of your life today? What did he protect you from today that you have no idea what it was? You have sit, you have fall asleep, Lord, thank you. You've been so good to me today. You kept out stuff that would totally destroy me. I didn't like the thing you let in especially, but you, <laughs> you kept that out. He holds you by your right hand. He protects you. His presence, the prosperity of his presence, the prosperity of his protection, the prosperity of his guidance. He said, and you guide me with your counsel. How many of you know, okay, here's the Sunday morning quiz, right? How many of you are fully redeemed? How many of you are not fully redeemed? How many of you think it's a trick question? (laughs) It's a trick question, exactly. You are fully redeemed. If you've come to Christ as your Savior, it is finished. However, you're not finally fully redeemed because you're still a victim of the fall until we get to heaven when all will be made perfect, right? So did you catch cold last winter? Well, you're not fully redeemed, right? That's a consequence of the fall. So I do all of that to tell you that, that we are broken. We're made of broken timber. I desperately need God's guidance in my life. My instincts, I have come to realize that my first instincts are normally always wrong from God's point of view. If you offend me, my first instinct is not to forgive you. I have a whole other list of options. So I came all the way from Cornerstone to tell you, you need help. You desperately need help. You ought to be singing that song every minute, I need thee, oh, I need thee. Because your instincts are wrong. They're broken. And we're, we're bro- broken people. We're made of broken timber. And we need his guidance in our lives. We need his wisdom to know what is right and what is good, to avoid the foolishness that we would normally be prone to do. We need his word to tell us about himself to tell us about his ways so that we can follow him and walk in his ways. Left to myself, I'm a serious problem. I desperately need his guidance. It needs to be the Siri of my life. It gives me my directions, you know. It needs to be my GPA of my life, you know, to give me directions. And the psalmist says, you guide me with your counsel, your presence, your protection, your guidance in my life, how prosperous can a person be? And then he ends by saying, and afterward you will receive me into glory, heaven. Talk about prosperity. For you to have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed by a good God, that's pretty good. 
That's what I call prosperity. Now, maybe you're not looking forward to heaven. I don't know. I, I think people have all these wrong concepts about heaven. You know, oh, no, I can't wait to get there. It'll be streets of gold. Well, we get used to those kind of things, right? A month into it, it'll be, all right, streets of gold. Say, well, I don't know if I want to go to heaven or not. I don't like playing hearts and singing in choirs. and don't want to sit on a cloud like. <laughs> Actually, if you, if you really, the Bible tells us very little about what heaven is like. And I think probably because, you know, we'd be jumping off sky, skyscrapers to get there. If we, if we really knew how wonderful this experience where all of, the, all of the problems and all of the brokenness is gone and an eternal of ultimate fellowship with it. We were made for that. We were built for fellowship with God. That's why everything in your life feels so ultimately empty that's not God. But in eternity with God, you never get tired of this. Like, what? How wonderful that is. And I love what Paul said in Philippians where he did one description of heaven in Philippians chapter 1. He says, to go and be with Jesus would be far better. By the way, I just want to say heaven is more than a place. It's a person. All right? So if you're thinking about how cool this place is, you need to think about how wonderful it is to be with Jesus, whom you were made for. So Paul says... To depart and be with Christ, and here's the, his description of heaven, is far better. And I'm glad that he didn't put far better than a filet mignon, or far better than the Tigers winning a baseball game, or <laughs> far better than, just far better, far better than anything. That's what, anything you could imagine, it's far better. When my dad was passing away uh, about 10 years ago, my Grandson Quinn came to me, he's probably about eight at the time, and he said, Papa, is Grandpa dying? And I said, yeah, I think he is. And then Quinn said to me, hey, Papa, what's heaven like? And so, kind of hard to explain to an eight-year-old when I don't totally understand it myself, so I fled back to Philippians chapter 1, and I said, well, the Bible tells us that heaven's far better. I said, Quinns, what's the really most exciting thing in your life? Told him about his video games, about... And I said, well, heaven's far better. He just paused, and he looked at me. He said, Papa, that's hard to imagine. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine. The psalmist says, you know, when all of this is over, you'll receive me into glory what I call true prosperity. And when my dad was dying, we did get around his bedside, and he wanted us to sing some of the old church songs he grew up with. And one he loved to have us sing together was sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace in the mansions, bright and blessed. He's prepared for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We'd sing this. And when we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. <laughs> And then I had, at my dad's graveside, I had the privilege of just saying a few words, and I remember pulling, he was from Colon, Michigan. Does anybody know where Colon, Michigan is from? The magic capital of the world. It's right here. And it's a little farming town, and so we pulled into that little cemetery, and all of his old friends were there. 
And it was like a movie set. Some in their Oshkosh Bagash farm jeans, some in fancy hats, some in... There's all my dad's old friends gathered around there. And I told them, as a part of my closing comments, about us singing that song around my dad's bedside. And then I started singing it. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his... When we all get to heaven, what, and they all joined in. And there we were in Satan's territory. Cemeteries are Satan's territory. He is the king of death. He desires death in his territory, singing the reality of the blessed prosperity of heaven is next. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. How prosperous is that? How good is your God? to be present with you, to protect you, to guide you, and guarantee heaven for you. And so the psalmist psalmist just breaks out in ecstasy. I love how this closes. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But, now at the beginning he went, God is good, but, now he is reversing that but, but for me, it is good to be near God. It is good to be near. That's what goodness is all about. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, and I will tell of all your works. So if you were in that Sunday school class with me as a little kid, singing God is good to me, God is good to me. He holds my hand, helps me stand. God is good to me. And if that was embedded in your brain, knowing what we know today, you can sing that for the whole rest of your life because God indeed is good. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for being so quick to doubt, for judging everything by earthly perspectives, judging you by earthly perspectives. Thank you for calling us into your presence and re-engineering the way that we think, re-engineering our attitudes. And thank you, Lord, that even when the doubts about your goodness invade our hearts, that we can claim with deep confidence that our prosperity is in you and that you are good to us. Thank you for being a good God. We're not worthy of it, but we love you for it, and we trust you for it. We call you our friend because of it, and we like you because of it. Thanks for being good to us. In your son's wonderful name we pray, amen. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, think about that, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you. Have a great week.